if rye whiskey and gin had a baby and it was a cute baby that's what this would taste like um it is probably the most fascinating thing to taste people on because it has either people who love it and are devoted to it or people who hate it and there's really no middle ground there Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. At the ripe age of 38, I left my former career behind and joined the hospitality industry. Since then, I've been on a rapid journey of learning, meeting all sorts of great people, and this, this podcast, is my chance to bring you along with me. Whether I'm interviewing somebody that works in the industry, another enthusiast, or occasionally stepping back to share what I'm working on, or my thoughts. I'm so glad you're here. And so with that aside, let's get into today's episode. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, for another episode of Decoding Cocktails. This is definitely the first take because everything we do here on this show is perfect all the time. And if you enjoy how perfect we are all the time, I would absolutely love it. If you would subscribe to this show, uh, maybe tell a friend, share an episode, write a review. Uh, And if you don't love it, that's fine too. There's room for everybody. Come on in. Everything's great. My guest today is Molly Troop. She is the uh, master distiller of Freeland Spirits in Portland, Oregon. When, uh, When Molly joined founder Jill Keeler on this adventure in 2017... Molly uh, made history, so to speak, as we say, by becoming the youngest known master distiller to ever helm an operation like that. So a a woman-owned and operated distillery. Uh, There is a growing number of them. We can always use more, but uh, hat tip to Molly for notching that little piece of uh, history right there. And uh, Molly comes to the trade with a master's of science in brewing and distilling from Harriet Watt University in Scotland. And so among the things we did during our time together, uh, Molly was uh, kind enough to send some of her product down my way. Uh, we don't have it yet here in the uh, uh, in the city of St. Louis, and so that was fun to kind of taste through things. But one of the things we did get into a little bit that was fun is with a previous guest, uh, Jeff Savage, up at... Uh, Oh, the botanist in Vancouver, Jeff had talked about using um, a rotary evaporator. And I remember distinctly Jeff going, well, it looks like science, which is a great line, by the way. But I couldn't have really told you what it was. And so Molly's going to talk about why they have one on hand, where they use it. And uh, thankfully, my analogy held, but we talk about it with respect to the idea of thinking about coffee when you brew it hot versus cold. Why might she be using this? Well, that analogy at least seemed to hold for her, and so you're going to hear a little bit about what in the heck a rotary evaporator is. Uh, Two things, for fun, regarding palate. One, being a woman-owned and operated distillery, um, it turns out that women have uh, roughly 50% more olfactory sensors than men. And uh, uh, with olfactory kind of being in your nose and aroma being roughly 80% of all flavor, sounds like they've got a little bit of advantage, uh, which is enviable and interesting. And uh, apparently the science of why is still a little bit 
uh, unknown, but um, interesting in terms of um, what that might allow someone like Molly to bring to the table. And to that point, regardless of whether you're batting with a handicap like me or not, uh, Molly and I talk a little bit about why it's important to hone your palate, and she has a couple thoughts on how you might do so. Um, one of the things that was fun, uh, and I've, I'd heard her talk about it before, is certainly there has to be a, a lot of glamour in, um, if I may, have, if glamour is the right word, in making a spirit, you know, being able to like stand over a, you know, uh, whiskey as it's dripping out the still, stand over gin as it's coming out on the other end, sharing it with folks, tasting uh, the fruits of your labor. But uh, during the course of our conversation, we certainly also talked about the uh, unglamorous side of the job. Uh, you can find Molly online at whiskey, with an E, E-Y, uh, whiskey.biscuit, and uh, Freeland. Uh, that is, like you spell, it's all one word, but Freeland. So freelandspirits.com or on the socials at at freelandspirits. And uh, so with that, uh, everything, of course, the notes, links will be in the show notes if you need them. And so enjoy this conversation with Molly. It was a great time. So Molly, I figured a good place to start would be, uh, would you mind telling everybody at home uh, what uh, what Hell Bitch is, please? <laughs> so Hell, Pit, Hell Bitch is our still. Um, she's a Kota still, made her journey all the way from Germany in 2018. Um, and I brought her into our building myself. Uh, we had a team help install her and she's been producing amazing gin and whiskey ever since. Mm-hmm. And Molly, what leads to, you know, not having ever purchased distillation equipment myself? Uh, obviously, you could probably find something closer to home for you, but what what led you to want to make a purchase in Germany um, in terms of obviously, I'm sure that has something to do with craftsmanship style, but what led you to make that decision? Kota is, is known for being a very good manufacturer of stills. Um, obviously, you want the best quality possible when buying a still. Um, their quality is so good, they usually have a two-year wait list. <laughs> um, so it was purchased well in advance. And we knew that we wanted something that could make a variety of products really well. Um, the still that we have is a pot column or a hybrid still. So you can run it as a pot still. It can also use a column as well. And that kind of diversity of spirits you can produce is really appealing. Um, they also make beautiful equipment. It's, you know, they have a team that comes to help install it. All those factors um, really helped us make it very clear that we wanted to work with Kota. Uh, you know, uh, and I'm sure diversity. Yeah. So, um, you know, we can certainly get into the product lineup at various times, but uh, so with your spirits, um which ones do you uh, do you kind of employ a mixture throughout all of them, or are there times you're only using column versus pot? How, how, how do things look day to day in terms of how you're employing your equipment? You know, we we generally run the pot versus use the column. Uh, when we're making rye whiskey, we do introduce the column a little bit, but not to its full capacity. If we ever wanted to make a rum, it's something I think we would use a little bit more. But for the gin, um, we're capturing all the great uh, botanical essences and using the pot 
um, really helps to produce a great flavorful gin. Got it. Got it. Uh, so something, and I've heard you, I think I, I read you talk about this a little bit, uh, and we can talk about your work in any way you see fit, but when I tell people that I run a cocktail business, often the first remark is like, oh my God, wow, that sounds so cool. <laughs> but you know, the prep involved for setting up a class, taking it down, building out a menu, uh, finding clients is all annoying and boring. Uh, and I've heard mm. you talk about like, obviously there is a great sex appeal to like, oh, you make gin, you make whiskey, but like, tell us about, since I've heard you say like, what is some of the the drudgery involved in making spirits? And of course, let's talk about the beauty of getting to taste the fruits of your labor too, as well. Right. Uh, I think it's like with anything, once you're very intimate with what, you know, the process behind making anything, you realize it's not super glamorous. My, uh, I have a lot of different connections and we all joke about how basically what we do is 80% janitorial work. That's a lot of it. You got, you need to keep things very clean. Um, a lot of the other stuff that's pretty mundane, but needs to be done every day is paperwork. There's a lot of different paperwork you need to make sure that your processes are consistent and accurate. There's a lot of different government oversight as well, so that you need to be able to have certain records for, um, you know, government agencies to look over on a general basis. And anytime you have like a whisper of an audit, you also need to be able to reproduce about five years worth of data to, um, to them. And so you, you're constantly recording stuff, um, that it takes a lot of time and, and energy, but there's a lot of really beautiful stuff about the industry as well. Enjoying the fruits of your labor. We get to, you know, sip cocktails up front in our beautiful tasting room. Um, and I don't have to make them. They actually don't let me make the, the cocktails. Um, it's a point of point of uh, pride on their side. <laughs> uh, I, I get to make the spirits and then I get to enjoy a cocktail up there. Um, and then a lot of what we do, that's a lot of fun as well as working on our palette. Um, that's, you know, not just with our, our gins and whiskeys that we produce, which we're constantly honing in the flavors that we're producing and making sure that they are consistent and don't change too much over time. But we also get to explore our friends products as well. And that brings a lot of joy. Yeah, let's let's explore the uh, honing of the palate for a minute because um, something I heard you talk about in a different interview was this idea that um, yeah, this idea that you know learning to identify various flavors, you know, aromas, et cetera, is very key. So, you know, if you are, and I think when you actually said this comment, you were onboarding somebody during the pandemic, uh, which made mm. this all made this all trickier in terms of you can't just run to the market during the height of COVID and smell everything. That probably would be pretty poor form. Um, They'd kick you out for sure. <laughs> but today, if you're hiring somebody when it's a, things are seemingly much more relaxed, you know, wherever the heck we are uh, at times right now. But if you were hiring somebody brand new in terms of honing their palate, are there are there various assignments you might give them or even just things you can think of off the top of your head that people should try? Absolutely. I think um, the world of sensory is really intimidating um, because, and there's a lot of different routes you can take. There's kits that are available that can very much guide you and in your interpretation of sense um, and, and, and this um, palette as well. 
And those are great resources, but they can often be a little bit expensive and, and frankly, intimidating. Um, I find that a much more approachable way for people to get started with sensory work is just to really dissect the world around you. Like that's available on a day-to-day basis. Our noses are constantly in work. So if you can think about something that you use on a daily basis and actually truly sit with it and explore not just the flavor, not just the aroma, but kind of the feeling that you associate it with too, I think one of the most fascinating things about flavor in general is that it has one of the strongest abilities to recall memories of any of our senses and being able to tie in sensory to memories is a very powerful association and it's a great starting point it's not technical by any means it's not something that you know if you said this tastes like my mom's cinnamon rolls um that's not necessarily like a useful information for a lab analysis but it gets there that's where you start and then you can further break down what 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 about this reminds you of your mother's cinnamon rolls and you can go tangential from there to the very components that you actually are tasting and I feel like that is a great way to to kind of unlock a little bit of your sensory skill but also build confidence that you are using adjacent terms to like the very technical dry terms that we need to use on a daily basis now that's that's helpful and you know so if I was attempting this, um, I because I, I feel like I I know where this goes, but you know we we obviously have such a powerful ability to second guess ourselves. So when you're first tasting that thing that does remind you of your mom's cinnamon rolls, is like should you be trying to like utter what comes to mind as quickly as possible as opposed to overthinking it. I guess, I don't know if there's a perfect way to do it. I guess it's just like, oh, that's going to sound stupid or whatever, as opposed to like, how do we actually get practice trying to articulate what's on our mind? Because your point, it's not objectively true, but if mm-hmm. it but if it takes you there, that's all that matters. Right. And I think you really have to say the first thing that comes to mind. Like it, it's kind of instant word association. Um, and then, you know, explore that a bit. Uh, when I was first really getting into sensory and doing a lot of different tastings with a group of people, you know, it, it can be really intimidating when everyone is maybe, maybe you think that they have a better palate than you. And so they're saying, oh, it tastes like this. And you're like, well, I didn't get that at all. And then you realize that actually, like, I was at an adjacent place. It just wasn't the word that I used. And then you're like, okay, so we're all on the same page and actually what we're tasting, we're just using different words. And then that's kind of the, the point is like, we're actually very close to each other. Terminology is important, but if we're all describing the same thing, then that helps build a lot of confidence that maybe it is just, we need to be using the same words, but we are sensing the same character and a spirit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Got it. That's that's definitely helpful. Um, uh, so I was excited to uh, see that you guys have and also um, receive, and we're going to get to that in a minute. So like uh, I was interested to dive into your your bourbon in a way, because first I, I often like to see that I feel like bourbon has successfully achieved Kleenex status. You know, people use it. <laughs> 
people use it in terms of just like when they're referring to whiskey as a category without sometimes even realizing it. I know that at Freeland, it's very, you guys have a lot of commitment to this idea of working with, you know, local growers and working with all sorts of different heirloom grains. My understanding for a lot of uh, bourbons is that at times we are using these very low-grade animal feed corns. And I'm not a distiller, so I have no I have what I think, but I don't, but so I guess I'm curious, what is your guys' approach to producing this? And do you have any thoughts on using what are more, uh, talk to people about the difference of using commodity versus specialty or heirloom grains and, and things when you're making a spirit? Totally. I think um, it commodity versus not is a very interesting, you know, how it's the future of grain future of whiskey uh, for our freeland bourbon it is a sourced grain which means our sourced whiskey which means that we don't distill it on site got it um so it is more than likely commodity grain um okay. and number two uh dent corn which um the reason that's so predominant in our industry is because it's has such a high starch content okay. and that's really what you know you get to you take starch from the corn, you break it down into sugar and you're fermenting that, distilling it. And the higher starch cont content you're starting with, the higher potential alcohol yields that you have. So when you think of like something like bourbon, you can actually yield quite a bit of alcohol versus something like rye, which is not super starchy. And so you always, you kind of start with less yields than, than something like bourbon. Um, so we with our Freeland bourbon had the intention of starting with a sourced whiskey. It's going to continue to be a sourced whiskey, but we like to introduce an Oregon element through Pinot Noir finishing. When Jill and I, who's the founder and CEO of Freeland first met, we fell in love with rye whiskey. That was one of our favorite styles. And we have been working since 2018 to put away barrels of rye whiskey. The first of which are going to be released this May, which is very exciting. It's going to be bottled and bond, which means it's made entirely in-house and it's going to uh, be a four-year-old product at that point. And eventually we were going to take that age up, just takes a long time to get there. Um, but when we were exploring looking, this rye, looking to make this rye whiskey, one of the things we talked about a lot was commodity grains and the other options that we had. And we ended up being able to work with a farmer um, down in Eugene, Oregon, Cam's Country Mills, and they make a lot of different types of grains. They focus a lot on rye and um, rye and wheat, and then they also have a lot of ancient varietals as well. Um, they uh, they work a lot with icorn um, and buckwheat as well, and so we started looking at other grains that were an option for this rye whiskey, and we settled on rye, buckwheat, and barley, and they're all grown in that in that region, um, it's kind of a co-op farmer, so they're not the only ones growing grain, but they work with other farmers. And they also have stone mills that they use to um, to grind the grain as well, which gives it a lot of more character than potentially using a hammer mill. It, the, all the components are still in there, and it adds an extra layer of maybe flavor, maybe not. We'll, we'll see in, a, in about two months. <laughs> Um, but it makes a for an interesting dif differentiation for 
some other grains that are used in the industry. I remember I'm a huge fan. I've read uh, the book, The Third Plate by the chef Dan Barber like four times, uh, but he talks very much about even with things like flour, you know, using a, kind of a, a stone mill versus more of like a, a an industry roller mill and how the, the industry roller mill will kind of break the wheat down in a way where the flavor really begins to kind of diminish. And so, um, mm-hmm. yeah. So here's a question and I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll pop this bourbon open right now. Cause you can certainly, you can, you can certainly, uh, here, let's, in case people at home can hear this. Okay. So well, it's, it's a good, pour beautiful. For, that's, that's a good pour for four thirty my time. Um, so Molly, a question regarding bourbon designation. So you guys have sourced mm-hmm. this and then sat it in, in, uh, in wine barrels. And I think you certainly can, uh, pick up very much a little bit of the wine on the nose and the palate. Are there, so I know bourbon is required to be sat in these, you know, charred new oak barrels. When you move it to uh, a wine barrel, does the designation of what it can be legally called change at all? Or is it still technically, I, I didn't know if by using a second barrel, if if the the nomenclature has to change at all. That's a great question. Uh it, it doesn't. Um, so we're using something that has four years in, in new American oak. So it is bourbon at that point. And at this time with uh, the TTB who tells us what we can and cannot do or, or call things, um, it still can be, it still is considered bourbon after um, a finish in a wine barrel. And you're actually seeing more and more different finished bourbons come, come to light. There's, um, even judging at one of the biggest world, biggest in the world spirits competitions, the San Francisco World Spirits Competition, they have a new category for barrel finished bourbon. Um, and actually, it might not be that new. It might have been a couple couple years. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not quite sure on that. But you start to see bourbons that are finished in a variety of different barrels, um, and I think it just adds an interesting take. Um, on we're very restricted on. A lot of the aging process from entry proof to a barrel a char to where it's where that barrel's made and manufactured, where the oak was grown, um, being able to introduce a little bit of variety just is a interesting play on the category. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I um, I appreciate you walking me me through that there, and uh, yeah, it's certainly a uh, delicious. Pro- so to whatever degree you'd be comfortable getting into it, since I've handled this bottle right here, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so much of the work I imagine and, and the cost that goes into producing the spirit, it's obviously the R&D time you spend getting the recipes. And obviously this one's sourced, but I'm I'm holding the bourbon right now, everybody. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, um, but in terms of like, the cost to actually put juice in the bottle. I mean, this is an extremely ornate bottle. So I have to imagine your guys' uh, bottling cost is pretty high overall <laughs> in order to bring, I mean, this absolutely stunning brand to life. And I mean, especially when you get into the blue and the uh, the clear, you know, dry gins, these bottles mm-hmm. are just, they're stunning. So. Thank you. Yeah, they, um, the bottle is a very unique shape. It is beautiful on a back bar in case anyone's listening who wants to purchase it for their bar. Um, and it also looks beautiful on your home bar shelf as well. 
Um, it is definitely a, an interesting bottle in terms of a lo logistics. It has to be at this point hand labeled. And so it's really, you know, an act of love to get that product into bottle. And there's, a, you know, I think four different labels that end up going on and then in a case. So it definitely takes a, a lot of labor. Um, we like to call it a labor of love and it, it's worth it on our end. We like it. It's the last step before it gets to people who can enjoy it. Because if it was just us enjoying it every day, it wouldn't be nearly as fun. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the things I don't want to uh, neglect, and I'm sure I wouldn't, but uh, so Freeland is obviously very proudly a woman-owned, uh, operated distillery. So you joined, signed on with Jill pretty much right from the jump uh, for your guys' operations. And to that point, um, not that I think it comes as probably a surprise to many people when they begin to hear it, but it's it's a very small percentage. What is it, 2% of distilleries or less are women-owned and operated? Is that, or and I don't, I don't want to twist the, the language there, but is that roughly kind of where we're swinging right there? I think so. It's, uh, I, I don't have, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, no but it, it's a very small percentage still. When we first started uh, in 2017, we knew that it was about 1%. I do think it has grown. I'm hoping it's two, but it's higher. That's even better. Right. Um, but it is definitely uh, still very minority um, of women in, in the industry. And along those lines is one of the things I, I I definitely know I wanted to talk about. So I was in a class a while ago and I'm teaching some folks and this guy just prattles off something along the lines of that uh, women have more taste buds, senses, et cetera, than, than men. And I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. And he claimed that it had something to do with like taste receptors to like check for bitterness and uh, you know, other things like since women may have traditionally been more like doing a lot of the foraging and gathering and whatnot. But anyways, I've heard you make mention of this before, uh, or it's written on your guys' site. Do you know anything in more detail about this or why that might be the case? Um, so women do have about 50% more olfactory cells than men. And it it's interesting because they're Research has said that because of that, women can taste better than men, but there is still some gray area that, there. Um, they're making the assumption that because you have more cells that you can also taste better, but there still has to be a lot of research. It's, it's fascinating that the brain is still so unmapped, really, and how the mechanisms work for sensory in particular is under research. So there's still a lot of like data that might need to be collected to make that a hundred percent accurate, but that is kind of what it, we think today. Wow. Yeah. It's, and uh, just if any time they, they ever begin to suspect why, I mean, obviously there's uh, also, you know, the more intimate caring for children, you know, in terms of evolutionarily, where did this come from or was it always right. the case, but just um, fascinating in terms of why and yeah, because uh, I feel like also this guy in the class um, said that, um, yeah, like that he found that it could be also why at times that women's senses might be more tightly tightly honed to like bitterness and whatever to avoid things that could potentially be 
poisonous or whatever. But either way, it was um, it was wild to hear right here. So totally, and and it's a fascinating uh, you know thought experiment. Is it anthropology? You know, did we? Is it safety survival? More than likely, that I mean that makes sense. Um, and whoever can find out the answer to that, I love to hear it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so it does seem like uh, coming to other products you guys have on your line that uh, the evolution of your gin product uh, or products was very interesting in terms of that, if I remember reading it correctly, that with this roto rotary evaporator you guys use, you're you're able to distill at much lower temperatures. Uh, talk to us about the production of your gin and why distilling at a lower temperature to those of us without chemistry degrees, why this can be, <laughs> why this would be beneficial. Well, I think it goes back to you know, the reason why we chose to do distilling. Um, so when John and I first met, along with our love of rye whiskey, we also bonded over our love of gin. And Freeland exists because Jill wanted, Jill believed due to Mima Freeland's, her grandmother, her, to Mima Freeland's lessons that women can do whatever they want to do and that good things come from the earth. And of course, why not take those good things from the earth and make whiskey from it? Um, so because of Mima, we're here. Um, we like to think about a lot of those lessons that Mima taught were in the garden. Um, so when we were talking and brainstorming on a our first product, we thought a garden fresh gen represents exactly who we are and who we want to be. So I have a background in chemistry and I had the ability in my undergrad to use a lot of really cool equipment. Uh, one of those was a rotary evaporator. Um, and the uh, the way I used it in that in a chemistry lab long ago was, bovine heart extraction, and I won't bore you with any more than that, but it was a very different application. I had known that it was starting to be used a little bit more in distillation setups, um, not so much craft, but on a larger scale. And I had always wanted to get my hands on and hands on one and use it, but we are we're at a point where we were wondering if we could accomplish this garden fresh gin without it. And through a lot of R&D, we did about 50 individual botanical distillations um, putting things together. And I had this moment where I was like, this is not it. And why isn't it it? So I I knew I instinctively was like, this is the, this is the piece that we need. I asked Jill for some money. Like this is, I think this is the right direction. And she was like, go for it, do it. And so we ordered this piece of equipment. It arrived at the distillery and I put it together myself. Um, it took me back to my chemistry lab job back in college. And um, I think I ran five botanicals on it right away. And those were the five botanicals that ended up in the gin. Um, and it, it's a very long botanical bill. We have 19 different ingredients. Five of them are done on this rotary evaporator and they're all fresh ingredients that we uh, source from a woman owned farm about eight miles from us. And then we have 14 botanicals that go through Hellbitch, our pot column still, and they are usually dried uh, botanicals. And it tends to be, obviously, juniper goes through there and then a lot of citrus, um, pink peppercorn and some cinnamon and cardamom, of course, because I love cardamom. Um, and then we take both of these distillates and we marry them together. 
add some water and then it's ready to go into bottle. Got it. Uh, so two things. One, in this case, are we talking about our, um, not our dry gin, but this guy, this guy right here? That's right. That okay. bl beautiful blue bottle. The blue bottle is stunning, folks. Um, so if I was staring at a rotary evaporator, not that I would probably maybe <laughs> see much happening, but if I found myself near one, what is actually happening inside that molly so that I can understand, like, so you're putting these five botanicals inside of a rotary evaporator. What What's happening to those botanicals while they're in there? So when you think of a normal, like, big pot column, big pot still, um, you know that you're applying heat, you are getting alcohol to become a vapor, and then it eventually runs into a condenser circulating cold water, becomes a liquid again, and then you can collect it. That's your distillation process. And a rotavap works the exact same way. Um, you apply heat, you uh, use a condenser, and then you collect liquid on the other end. But the trick with a rotary evaporator is instead of applying at uh, running a distillation at atmos atmospheric pressure, you're actually applying a vacuum. So the vacuum changes the pressure in there. And because there's a change in pressure, the boiling point of ethanol changes. So ethanol normally boils at around 78 degrees Celsius, uh, which is around 200 degrees Fahrenheit. And with a vacuum applied to it, um, our vacuum in particular, you can run closer to room temp. So that's about 70 degrees Fahrenheit, 30 degrees Celsius. Um, it makes a vast difference in flavor because, you know, when you're applying heat, you are getting um, flavors that are that have a little bit of heat applied to them. So instead of like, if you use citrus, instead of capturing something that was fresh citrus, you're capturing capturing more of like a marmalade citrus. It's not necessarily bad. It's just a different translation of that ingredient. If you're using a rotavap on citrus, you're getting that needs no translation moment where it tastes like fresh citrus. And the same is true for the ingredients that we use, which are rosemary, mint, and thyme. They're captured fresh they taste exactly how you think that they should if you ran them through hellbitch at more of a boil they would taste more like the cooked versions of themselves and so it's just a different way to capture these flavors that make for a interesting product that also when you taste it you can you taste mint you taste rosemary and you don't need to you you don't need to be anywhere other than transported to Mima's garden mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah. So one, I would imagine anybody that goes through hell bitch wouldn't come out the same on the other side, but, uh, <laughs> Probably but, <not. laughs> uh, but I don't know. I'm guessing this analogy works, but like, I'm thinking of just hot brewed versus cold brewed coffee in terms of, you know, yeah. when you, when you taste that, uh, you know, hot, hot brewed versus cold one's not better, but those flavors are certainly more mellow and more rich coming through on mm -hmm. cold brew versus the heat is kind of chemically really kind of straining the coffee grounds and whatever with that. I'm not a chemist, but, uh, but yeah. yeah. Okay. That's exactly right. Got it. Okay. Uh, well let's, let's see if I can play my, uh, my Chris, Chris transportation moment here or not. So, uh, so <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I will say that the, um, like I feel like I get, man, I'm some kind of like, like I'm smelling like 
celery and like some kind of herbal component right here. I'm thinking like a, like a very, wow, like, yeah, the uh, the herbs really come through in a very interesting way. Like, I guess we shouldn't deprive our other senses here real quick, but uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, gosh, the wow, the the botanicals on the back feel very super floral. Um mm -hmm. and also the heat feels very um relaxed because this guy, it's not the high one. This clock's in at 45. It's on our 57% uh friend over here. Uh, <laughs> it is not, although you'd be surprised how lightly that 57% also goes down. Mm -hmm. Um we're really big on texture. Um, I think that's an important um piece of the you know the mouthfeel is really important to me and um especially with this heavy botanical load that we use um it really helps to um stick with you on the palate but also one of the most fascinating things about this is 19 botanicals um if i suggest one to you that's the one you're going to taste and i i love that because i have a lot to pick from where i can be like oh yeah do you taste this and you're like actually now i do right. um and really it just morphs when you put an ice, an ice cube on it and just let the proof change a little bit. It, you know, you, you get a whole different layer of flavor from that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So obviously cocktails aren't your end of the house, but with the two gins that you have, are there ways that you find that like in terms of the simple, like you prefer one in a gin and tonic or one with a uh, gin and soda or uh, are there basic ways you like to enjoy them when you are at home? Totally. I, um, I don't like to, well, I, I do like making cocktails, but I'm not great at it. So I let the professionals at our bar do it, but I can enjoy a great one. Um, I think our blue bottle gin does great in a gimlet. That's my drink of the moment right now. Um, I've been um, actually at home been making uh, my own time simple serve with it and it's just really hitting the spot um, and then with the with the clear bottle the dry gin um, I tend to do martinis and in particular a dirty martini we have an internal debate I don't think it'll ever get um, resolved over how a martini should should be if it should be dirty with olives or just a nice clean one with lemon and we have, we're like split 50, 50 down the line. But the nice thing about the dry gin is that it does both really well. Um, but of course I like enough olives to be basically like a, a decent snack. Yeah. 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 And, um, but yes, at, um, 57%, um, yeah, it certainly can stand up well to olive brine, which obviously has a lot of uh, force that it's bringing to the party right there. Yeah, and the uh, the traditional versus dirty martini conversation is very, very real for sure. <laughs> and I feel like I'm hearing more and more that we might have to add another you know debate to that with that espresso martini. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's a whole other debate. Um, I don't know question uh what i was thinking about this so uh navy strength gin is where i think our dry gin would clock in at over here at 57 percent mm -hmm. i'm someone who's less caught up in like the um you know the overproof whiskey world and whatnot my question is when you decide to bring this guy to life at 57 percent is it because you uh like you're kind of uh you like torturing people or is it has <laughs> i'm sure molly a, a, a big portion of it really is less the torture and more like 
like what the expressions of flavor are at proofing, but mm-hmm. how do you how do you begin to arrive at a decision of what what proofing something should be at? Because obviously this guy would be much harder to sip, even though I'm about to do it neat right here. So you know, and here's the thing, Chris. Torturing people, we're not about that, but surprising people, that is something we are about. I think my most favorite thing is everyone sees this proof and they're like, oh my gosh, that's so hot. And then I'm going to let you try it. It would be, but it doesn't come across as hot as it is. And in fact, that makes it a little, um, I mean, dangerous in a cocktail, if you will. Um, like when we're talking about martinis, we all have decided that a 1.5 ounce martini is exactly right. Two ounces is too much. Yep. And and that way it's value added. You can use a lot less to get the same effect. Yep. I, um, a friend of mine uh, who's up in Manhattan who said he recently tasted your guys' stuff over at Leyenda. I don't know who was there doing the tasting for your team, but um, yeah, he certainly talks about that, man, these like super high proof, like five to one or whatever martinis. It's like, you can drink those, but you're going home right after that. And, uh, <laughs> you know, drinking a great one-to-one uh, is is great for flavor, but also like if you want more than one cocktail, highly recommend a one-to-one. Uh mm. Yeah, so definitely more traditional, but like, wow, there is, that is a very long flavor right there. It's very, mm-hmm. very peppery, um, very, but mixed in with like some botanicals. Um, and yeah, you're right. For 57, uh, it doesn't punch all that hard. So uh, I guess we know what we're having for breakfast from now on. Uh, <laughs> and when I was designing this, Jen, um, it was intentional you know, we wanted something that was great in a martini and we kind of reversed it from there. Um, two ingredients that I think in particular are well highlighted in there are sumac and lemon verbena, mm. um, especially with olive brine. Both of those work really well, but sumac also has this great uh, citrus forward flavor to it that also pulls well with a, a citrus peel. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, um, I could definitely get kind of a general um olive kind of vibe off of this so i think um i think it certainly smacks of a great traditional gin but to me i am also the kind of person where i feel like when i and you might have comment on this we could leave the the brand name out of it for on for any commentary you have but for me like beef eater just punches too hard for me on the juniper notes the piney notes or whatever, but it's just like, that is the kind of gin that makes me not interested to drink gin um, versus this is certainly much more palatable in that regard. Maybe they just need to use a rotary evaporator. I don't know. So I, I uh, always like really dimensional spirits. I I like to be able to pick apart flavors. I like to be able to um, see that there's a lot of layers to something. And so I, I would agree with you on that. There's that with ours, there's very intentional layers that you can see. We have top, middle, and bottom notes that kind of change over time a little bit, um, but it makes it more fascinating to drink. So here's a question for you, because when the lay person looks at one of these gins right here, I'm holding up the uh, the regular, the standard Freeland gin mm-hmm. right now, they are going to see something that looks like the consistency of water. And obviously, the minute they smell it or taste it, they're going to know it's definitely not water. 
But but when you talk about texture being important, what in a spirit that looks so damn clear, because it is, what is it that adds texture, Molly? What's mm. in there that's creating that, that give it more body than water? I mean, it's not quite the same as with whiskey. There's different components in there, but another way to kind of check um, is the legs. So if you like yep. twirl your glass Correct. and you yep. can see that, how, how it's sticking to the sides. Yep. Yep. Um, and you can do the same thing with gin, but with gin, what you're looking for, for texture from ingredient sake is botanicals. So there's certain textures that, um, you know, certain botanicals that you can use that add different textures. One of those is licorice root. So not only, I mean, licorice root doesn't really add a licorice flavor to it. What it does add is an inherent sweetness. And in fact, you're like, you're limited on how much you can use because um, I think it's the the GRAF uh, for the generally recognized as safe um, list has it. So you can only have so many parts per million in there, um, but you can incorporate that still in a recipe and it not only adds a little bit of sweetness, but it adds a thickening effect too to your palate. And other botanicals have very similar profiles where they just kind of create a, I wouldn't say chemical reaction, but they create a sensation that more lingers with you. It's the same thing as like, if you think of eucalyptus or mint, right? It adds that cooling sensation, but also at the same time adds heat. And it's an interesting thing to use with alcohol where it has cooling and heat at the same time, just the nature of alcohol. And so you get this kind of effect where it just saturates your, um, your, your, your tongue, basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Got it. I'm curious if you, for people out there listening, um, who are working to hone their palate a little bit more, uh, you know, you've certainly talked about this idea of like this depth of flavor and yeah, on this dry gin, I mean, man, is this, this is long right here. But if you were evaluating a spirit that you were not your own, obviously, because they're amazing, uh, but something that you were nonplussed by, what might some of the problems with that be uh, flavor wise, body wise? I guess like, are there markers you could give people for how to better think about uh, what might be left out of a, uh, a subpar spirit right there? Um, it's funny. I, I do spirits judging in my, in my spare time. And so this is something that I have one coming up and it's, it's on my mind. How do you adequately judge other people's spirits? And it's very similar to how you judge your own. Um, but it's context is important. You're trying to look at what someone's trying to achieve. Um, I think one of my most fascinating moments as a judge was tasting something that was at the time I didn't know, but it was mango habanero. And you're introduced to this amazing mango nose. And so immediately you're like, wow, this, this smells amazing. And then you take a sip and you immediately have a negative reaction because you're hit with habanero out of nowhere. And at the time I was like, well, this is like not this isn't great this is a this is a bad product and over time you're like well, actually no this is exactly what they were intending right this is a mango happen they, they nailed it might not be my preference but they nailed it i think when you're we're judging something you got to know the context what they're trying to do with it 
But from an overall standpoint, I think what I look for is something that is well-rounded. Um, you don't want something that is, again, one-dimensional. You want something that, you know, has the intention where there's more notes to it than not. And um, it's um, something that has complexity to it. And part of that is kind of not just the nose, not just the aroma, not just the mouthfeel. It's how all of those components are working together. Okay. No, that's, that's helpful. And, and overall makes sense. I think it's, um, I mean, every day and you guys see this at the distillery and I'm sure when you're given tours and in the bar, but it's just like the average person just has no, they, they so often are lacking any context for what is put in front of them there. And just how to think about this stuff can sometimes be helpful. Um, you know, some of this is, gets to the spirit. Some of it gets to cocktails, but you know, um, I've heard another o Oregon uh, bartender, uh, Jeffrey Morgenthaler, write quite a, quite a bit about the subject. But like, you know, gendered drinking and whatnot, you know, being that obviously Freeland thinks about this, but gendered drinking still seems like a very real thing. And I think I encountered on both sides of the aisle, you know, men that are like, oh, I don't want this drink in a stemmed glass or a drink that's pink, you know, whatever. Um, are there things that Freeland does in terms of working to normalize those things on one or both sides of the aisle? Are there, are there ways that you guys think about this in terms of, no, there, there's not guy and gal or, you know, however you conform drinks. There's just what you like. I mean, every day, every, I think every day we think about this in some way or, or another. Um, and we, I mean, we try to remove as much gender. Like we, I can't tell you how many times uh, people to say that, you know, gin is for women and bourbon is for men and how many times and just, yeah. How many times going out and ordering a whiskey by myself neat and being like, are you sure you don't want ice or, you know, we've all, we've all had that. And so we've made very specifically Freeland a space safe, a safe, safe place to enjoy spirits however you'd like. Um, so we don't, we don't gender, we don't, we don't judge, order whatever you want, and we'd be happy to make it. Um, I think that there's definitely starting to be more, that's more acceptable in a lot more ways, and a lot more places. And I hope that that's the trend for 2023 is get rid of genders from drinks, because what does that even mean? <laughs> really? Right. Um, but you know, maybe it'll take a little bit long, maybe it's 2024 goals. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, um, yeah, it's cool to see the progress. And obviously this is some of the jockeying we see in our society in general as like people figure out wh where are the new boundaries, but yeah, it, it's, um, yeah, people should feel comfortable ordering whatever in the hell they want and always beckoning people to say like, Hey, like, you know, to trying Molly's gin right here. It's like, Oh, you meet people all the time who they had, uh, terrible gin experience 23 years ago in college and they just never looked back and as spirit quality distillation quality cocktail quality increases everything we deserves a second chance to discover like oh maybe your bad memories of tequila are wrapped up in really terrible tequila maybe that's the problem exactly i can't tell you how many times i've heard people's horror stories with gin like oh i can't taste it i'm like I mean, you don't have to, that's fine. Um, 
and the realization that gin has either changed or that your tastes have changed people's tastes change over time too at the older you get the more you like bitter the less you like sweet you know it's worth revisiting things that you maybe you don't think you like you like i for the longest time did not like bell peppers but i find myself eating bell peppers by themselves now it's a strange world it it always is um as a smaller distillery obviously you have the chance to be very hands-on meet so many of your patrons and whatnot but also clearly like hey we need to sell enough product to like keep the lights on to keep the mission going so one thing that i imagine most people are not walking into bars and you know and liquor stores across the country looking for are various types of Geneva, uh, Geneva. sorry how, however you want to say that but anyways at freeland uh, i interviewed a uh I interviewed a guy named Philip Duff the other day. He has Old Duff Geneva, and uh, I've still never figured out what the exact proper pronunciation for the term is. But anyways, Freeland has Geneva. Is that how you guys actually call it? is. Okay, yes. perfect. Do you mind talking to us about that spirit, what led you to make it, and why people need to be thinking more about this type of product right here? Because it is certainly fringe and yet i celebrate you for having it in your, <laughs> in your portfolio um so geneva was um i think it came to light and we started i started uh research on it in 2018 um and we were putting away rye whiskey um always always a goal and we were getting so many people who are like, i really want to taste this and we're like, no, <laughs> you don't get to taste until the whiskey is ready. And it led us on to this thought pattern of, well, maybe we should like do a little glimpse into it. And Jill and I both don't like white whiskey. And we really don't release things we don't like personally, which is maybe not the best. But it, in this case, it ended up bringing us to making Geneva. Um, Geneva is basically our white rye whiskey uh married with seven different botanicals um this rye whiskey is you know it's it's organic grain it's um distilled on site and we do a basically a distillation marry it with botanicals um one of the highlighted ingredients from this is hazelnuts from um it's called my brother's farm they're out of eugene oregon as well um and then juniper coriander um Grains of Paradise and Angelica Root, those are predominant flavors in there. Um, and we run another distillation, very similar to this processing we do for our rye whiskey. And um, it ends up that it ends up producing a spirit that is basically if rye whiskey and gin had a baby and it was a cute baby, that's what this would taste like. Um, it is probably the most fascinating thing to taste people on because it has either people who love it and are devoted to it or people who hate it and there's really no middle ground there um it tastes kind of more of a mezcal um kind of has more of that smokiness to it there's another ingredient i didn't mention but caraway aids a lot of smokiness to it um, and it drinks really well, kind of in a, in a cocktail similar to like a mezcal. Like it does great in a margarita style drink. It does great with citrus. Um, and it, it's a fun one to explore, but it definitely is very niche. Uh, it has it has a very cult following, but small. 
small but mighty. <laughs> well, I I've heard it once said. They said uh, the best the best art divides the audience, and so I think um, you know having uh, having that kind of thing that is maybe some people everybody dreams of having their Tito's one hit wonder you know but it's like it's nice to have something that um people have a strong reaction to because you're going to have your you know bring your all your zealots and dissenters together and let them just have it. no but that's 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 cool that you guys found a compromise for no we really want to try the rye well here's our beautiful baby representation <laughs> of it right there that's totally. pretty that's pretty cool right there so going all the way back to the beginning as we kind of uh, begin to kind of at least stare down the finish line a little bit. So you were caught up in chemistry. You thought you were going to be, you wanted to work in forensics or something. Was that it? And then, yes. you, and then you got pulled onto the distillation route. So, and, you know, I, I remember when I first started making beer and i remember thinking it's like wow if science class had always been this cool you know uh but that's probably not allowed for kids our age and when i was in high school but uh so you know and i remember you talking about you always having uh i think i think you mentioned like having a love for cooking but is there is there a clear moment you remember that switch happening for you in terms of realizing feeling called to this path right there yeah, I was um, in my junior year of college and I had just really, really sat with the, I mean, because, I mean, you're working very hard to get this degree and you think your life's going to go a certain way. And then I was at this uh, crossroads where I was like, do I fight for what I think that I want, but I'm not 100% sure anymore. And there's seven more years of school for me to really um, sink into before I'd even get there. And I'm not sure now. Or do I try something else? And I, at that point, knew that I really loved chemistry. And I wanted to apply that love somehow, some way. And I happened to, like, have a moment where I was actually, you know, a glass of whiskey in my hand. And I was thinking of a friend who was a year ahead of me who was going to go to UC Davis and do the brewing program. And I had done that for a bit, but I had that information just sat differently with me then. And I realized that was actually something that you could do. And so I started looking at more of like what the profession, what that looks like. I started, I had a meeting with a brewer that was in the college town. I was like, you know, what's your, what's your day look like? And um, it fascinated me because it was chemistry. It was applied chemistry. And it was also, you're not in a lab all day. You're not sitting all day you're moving around every day is different and so it checked a lot of boxes where I thought of like knowing myself well enough that I thought that I would enjoy and so I looked into UC Davis Brewing and I realized that they had a two-year wait list at that point and I knew myself also well enough to know that if I what if I just stopped going if I got my degree and I didn't go into another program after that I I wouldn't go um and I just, I thought that I maybe needed to have that program. So I looked at to different ones and I found one in Scotland that was a master's in brewing and distilling. And I applied and within a month I learned that I, that I got in and basically started packing my bags before I realized that I still needed to graduate. Um, and I got there that September and it was a year long program. And it was exactly what I needed. It was a great chance to live someplace else. I, um, you know, in the world 
and meet um, peers that are still in the industry. Um, and we're all scattered throughout the world. And then also obviously learn some very valuable information about making beer, making whiskey, making all different sorts of distilled products. So it was a very valuable experience for me. And then I was able to take that knowledge and co go back to Oregon and apply it in the industry. And I've been in the Oregon industry ever since. Hmm. I, you know, to your, to, to something we talked about at the, the top of the conversation, um, that, you know, distillation has a lot of curb appeal and yet there's a lot of, uh, uh, hard things about it. Uh, there could also be a lot of demand to get into the field, but if someone young or mid-career is listening to this, I mean, you know, does it feel to you as we kind of, the industry kind of treks up, does it feel like there's a lot of opportunity for people to find their way into, uh, distillation these days or does the field feel very very crowded right now do you have any do you have any thoughts on that it's interesting because i feel like the industry is craving um people with experience right now there's like a minimal amount of experienced people to go around but that also means that there's potentially ground floor too because people keep getting maybe promoted because they do have that experience and then they need someone who's you know there who wants to do more on the janitorial side which is very necessary and needed um so i think i do think that there is a good amount of opportunity and furthermore there's also a lot of more openings for women and people of color there's a lot more people who are really kind of putting their foot down in the industry who want to encourage people from different backgrounds to get started in it because it has been predominantly white and predominantly male for so long. Um, and I think a lot of people hope to see that change. So I think that it, it's a great time to get started. There's no time like now. Um, and there's a lot of, um, there's the American Craft Spirits Association. They have a step up intern program, which is a great way to gain some information. I think they wrapped up their application, but they, um, they have a lot of people who might be able to help um, guide in the right direction. And I'm always happy to also guide people as well. Now, that's a good, that's a good point. Uh, there's, it does certainly feel like there is certainly momentum for, you know, a more inclusive industry in that regard. Um, cool. I'll look up the, uh, their step up intern program too, just to kind of be able to share that out with people right there. Um, Molly, is there anything we haven't, covered today that is top of mind for you at all that we haven't talked about uh we'll certainly link to freeland in terms of uh all of your guys uh social and website and everything but is there anything you'd like to say about the distillery your products anything we haven't covered you'd like to get into i think that we did a very nice well-rounded conversation um I can't think nothing is coming to mind immediately. So I think that means we probably covered just about everything. Do you have any other questions? You know, um, I, I'm kind of looking over things I'd prepared and I feel like we've done a pretty good job of covering them. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I think it's, it's things. Uh, I was very excited to talk about the lower temperature, uh, distillations and whatnot. Mm. And so that's pretty cool. Uh, I will link to some other, um, uh, there's, uh, 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 
both Molly and Jill have both, uh, there's a lot of great literature out there on uh, Meemaw who Freeland. Um, so yeah, so her last name is Free. Is, is last name, was her last name Freeland? Yes. Okay, yeah. But uh, yeah, so anyways, but uh, there's a lot of great stories about like, you know, the the genesis of the the distillery and whatnot. So I'll be sure to make sure that gets linked to. Um, that was a, that was a fun founding story in that regard. So no, uh, uh, and if, if Molly, if people want to follow you online, and of course we'll link to it in our show notes, where should they be keeping up with what you're up to these days? You can find me on Instagram at whiskey.biscuit, not whiskey biscuit, but whiskey.biscuit. That's right. Don't, don't go for just straight whiskey biscuit. That's, don't <laughs> That's want not cool. <laughs> don't, don't want any of that. Um, Oh, wonderful. Well, uh, thank you for this so much. It's been a lot of fun. Um, I appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Wonderful conversation. And hopefully we get to chat again soon. I would love that. I'd love that very much. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. The show notes for today's episode are available at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up with what we're working on, there are two great ways to do so. One, our short weekly newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, which you can sign up for at decodingcocktails.com newsletter. Or give us a follow on Instagram at decodingcocktails. If you think this podcast is great stuff, we'd love it if you'd subscribe or, of course, share an episode with a friend. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon and happy cocktailing.